Okay, so we are starting our message this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We'll open the word of prayer and we'll ask the Lord to um, bless this time for us. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for your word. We pray, dear Father, this day, dear Lord, that you would open our hearts to be able to receive it, to know it, to understand it and to trust in it. We pray, dear Lord, that the message this morning, Father, would impact our own hearts and our lives, that you would grant unto me, dear Father, that comfort that I need, dear Lord, to be able to expound the word of God clearly, that I may be able to share the truth of the scriptures and what you've laid upon my heart. I praise you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Okay, so I don't have to tell you what the outline is. You've got it in your your bulletins. Okay, so that is my outline, four points there. Um, first point is an expectation of knowledge in man. And I've titled it that because of what we see with respect to the Lord's words to Nicodemus. If you have a look at after Jesus has given the explanation from verse 5, Nicodemus answered in verse 9 and said unto him, How can these things be? How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? So it's a question that Jesus is having, but you can notice that within that question, there is an expectation of knowledge that Nicodemus is expected to know and to understand those things that have gone before, you know? And that's what he's, that's what he's bringing out. And the Lord refers to him here as a master of Israel, a master. This is a reference to his capacity as a, as a teacher of of high degree. Um, it's interesting because the word is didaskalos in the Greek and in, the, in all modern translations, they've translated that as simply teacher. Okay, simply teacher. And they've applied that across the board, even in the New King James, in that area here, right here, where it says, where it says master. Um, but we already recognise by the context that Nicodemus was much more than a teacher, wasn't he? Um, Nicodemus is not just a teacher, he's a master of Israel. He isn't a teacher that got in with a 58er, you know. He is, he is a master of divinity, you know. So he's a lot more than just a teacher. We recognise that by the context. And the context always should be that which brings out the truth of what, uh, what a word means in its context. Um, we know that in, in the arts degree, in the liberal arts, master, the position of master or the degree of master is the highest achievement. In other fields, it's doctor. You know what doctor means? Teacher. It also means teacher. It means one that's able to teach doctrine. Okay? So he's one that has actually gotten to a particular point in his um, scholastic studies, which he can now effectively teach those same doctrines. Uh, You can imagine... You can imagine the response from one whose very achievement changes how he presents his name, uh, how he would respond if you said to him, oh, you're a teacher, you know? So he, I'm doctor so-and-so, you know? So, no, he's a lot more than just a teacher. He is a, he is a master. The Oxford English Dictionary gives one of the definitions of master is who both carries authority and who is approved of learning, a scholar, And this description sits really well with Nicodemus as a ruler of the Jews. 
So the context of a word always bears out its meaning, all right? So whenever you're reading, always have a look at that context. So, but Jesus, Jesus continues here, and he, and he, it's almost surprising for him. He says, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? So clearly in the mind of our Lord, there is an expectation of knowledge in Nicodemus. Uh, remember in verse, in verse 3, he gives Nicodemus some statements. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he goes into that and explains it a little bit more clearly in verse 5, where he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot um, enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So the Lord is referring to that miraculous and, and spiritual work that's done within a man to completely change him, to completely change him. Um, it's a change in him so profound that it renders him a different man, a man with a, with a new heart, a man with a new heart. And uh, the Lord expected Nicodemus to understand this. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10. The reason why he's expecting Nicodemus to understand this is because if he is a scholar of Israel, if he is one who has reached that high degree, he would know his Bible. He would really truly know his Bible. And he would have seen and recognised that even in, um, in the Old Testament there, the very first king of Israel had a, um, had a change. There was a change within his life. Have a look at chapter 10. Look at verse 6. This is, this is Samuel speaking to Saul about what's going to happen to him. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, just verse 6, he says, And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. Shall be turned into another man. That's the difference that the new birth makes. That's the difference when the power of God and the Spirit of God comes and indwells the man. That's, that's what Jesus is referring to as being born again. You become a new man. Have a look down a little bit further at verse, verse 9. Verse 9 tells you the practical thing of what actually happened. So he's left Samuel and he's travelling back after he's, gone, after he's gone looking for his donkey. He's now travelling back and says, And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill beyond the company of prophets, behold, a company of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. And it came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that is come unto the, the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And one of the same place answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? A change was wrought within this individual's life, within King Saul's life, that completely rendered him almost a stranger to the people that knew him before. It was such a profound difference. And that's one of the things that's expected Nicodemus to know. He's also expected to know what David said, you know, when he was in the, um, in the Psalms, when he has that wonderful repentant prayer after the sin of Bathsheba. And he says, 
Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. There was a spirit that was given to King David to be able to do the work of God. Um, But it doesn't stop there. Ezekiel talks about it as well. In Ezekiel in chapter 18, verse 31, he says, Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So this is God speaking to the house of Israel, telling them that they need to repent, that they need to be changed completely. But it's not just, it's not just changing to try and like, you know, uh, wash all your dirt off you and you doing it yourself. This is God doing the work and God doing the work in your lives because you're willing. In Ezekiel, again, in chapter 36, Verse 25, he says, Then will I, this is God, sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit would I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And this is the work that God does within man within man's lives and it was expected that a teacher a master of Israel so qualified should have known that God can cleanse and wash and give a new heart he would have and should have concluded when he was reading Isaiah in the first chapter of Isaiah beautiful passage in verse 18 when when the Lord says come now and let us reason together saith the Lord Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is the work God is doing in our lives. This is His work, washing us and cleansing us. But it has to be from a willing heart. There has to be a willing participant for this. I want to be washed. I want to be completely clean from my own sin and filthiness. I don't want to continually dwell within my sin. I don't like it. I hate it. You see, I'm aware of it. And that's what God is expecting within Nicodemus. But he's also expecting that of you. See, there is is a knowledge of these things expected even within you. You and I have an awareness of these things. Um, we already gone through before that you don't need to be a master of learning to recognise that God exists. You know, um, the invisible things of him are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So you don't need to be a master of learning to recognise the existence of God. It's already there. It's already there. It's given to you. You don't need to be a scholar to know that there's something wrong with the world. You don't need to be a genius to look around you and see there's something wrong with the world. All you need to do is switch on your television set, you know. And you can see what's wrong. All you need to do is read the papers. All you need to do is listen to the conversations of those in public transport, in a train or a tram or a bus, when you're travelling with them. All you need to do is listen to the conversations of your workmates and see what they say and how they act and the things that they endeavour to be involved in and do and are willing to expose themselves to. You don't need to have a qualification to know that when you judge another, you often condemn yourself and the bible says that for thou that judgest doest the same things you know we we complain about what somebody else is doing to us and yet you flip that over and we are doing the same things to other people 
We complain that people aren't, you know, just your mobile phones responding to your call. You know, they don't answer. And yet, we do the same thing. Oh, don't want to listen to that one. Don't want to pick that one up. You know, we do the same things. We struggle with these things. You don't need to be an Einstein to fear that God will render to every man according to his deeds. Romans chapter 2 has this incredible um, section to it where um, this day and every day, the unregenerate, those that don't know Christ, those that haven't got a heart that's been changed, those that haven't been given of the Spirit of God, these same people each and every day, the Bible says, are storing up wrath unto the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Knowing that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9. So imagine, imagine that. Imagine that you're saving money, saving money every single day. Imagine getting paid every day. That would be nice. We get paid every day and we are saving a certain amount of money every single day. So we're taking that portion out and we're taking and putting it out. Make sure, make, let's take it all. Let's get all the money, every money that we earn every single day and we're putting it aside. Only to let it build up and build up and build up and build up that once it's reached a certain point, we can just completely lash out. Well, the Bible says that's exactly what we do with sin. We are storing up wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. And that's what the unrepentant do. That's what those who have not been willing to give their hearts to the Lord do. They do this day in, day out. So there has to be something that's changed. But sin seems to blind us. You ever notice that? Do you ever notice that when you do something good, you always got tickets on yourself, haven't you? You know, oh, I let that person help that lady across the road and I stopped and helped this person with a flat tyre and I, you know, I went and I got some fuel for someone or I put it in their car. You remember those things really clearly, don't you? You remember all the good things that you do. Why is it that we don't remember our sin? Why is that the thing that we always forget? We remember all the good things that we do. We never, ever, ever call to mind the evil. The Bible says that we are blinded by our sin. Why is it that though they knew God, they glorified Him not as God in Romans 1? Why is that? The Bible says that they became vain in their imaginations. Why? The Bible gives us and it says because their foolish heart was darkened. You know, when our hearts are darkened and because we don't like to retain God in our knowledge, the Bible says God gives us over to a reprobate mind, a mind that can no longer distinguish between good and evil. It can't, can't see the distinction. Tell me, tell me you can't see that today. Have a look around you today. Have a look at what they're promoting as good and wholesome and right, you know, and what they're promoting as evil. The two seem to have switched completely over, you know, completely over. And the Bible says that that is what's going to be happening in the last days. But it's not just the last days. You see, it's always been there to some degree because people have refused the knowledge of the truth of God and they refuse to see their own, their own sin. You ever notice that with the people that you argue with? Oh, they're so blind, aren't they? 
Every time you're having an argument with someone, they're so blind to their own errors. They, they can't see it. They can't see what's so plain to you. You know, you can see it. You can see it so clearly. It's right in front of their eyes. And no matter how you clearly try and point it out to them, their error, they, don't, they just don't get it. You ever wondered why it's only ever them? Why is it only ever them? Why is it only ever them that's at fault? I've said, I've said before, as a, almost a little bit funny, but you know when you're putting your finger at somebody else, there's three fingers pointing back at you, you know? And that seems to be what, what we do a lot of the time. We're always pointing the finger at somebody else, but really, truly, we won't acknowledge our own error. We are blind to him. For some reason, it's always his fault, always her fault. Not only will this mindset ruin your relationships with one another, not only will it ruin your relationships, it will also keep you from heaven. It'll keep you from heaven. That, that's, you know, relationships can be temporary, you know, but heaven is, is forever. So I mentioned, I mentioned before, and it was because of as I was, I was going through this, our relationships one with another, do you know that is what makes us happy or sad? Did you know that? I can have all the wealth and I can have all the stuff that the world offers, but when I am really, really blown with my wife or with uh, a friend or with somebody else from church or, or, or something like that, I'm miserable inside. I hate it. You know, like I am really sad, though I might have everything else going for me. But simply because I'm blowing with another person, I'm miserable. And you ever notice that when everything is good with the people that are around you, when you're loving one another and enjoying each other's company, everything like that, it doesn't matter what you're going through in a material way, everything's okay. Life's all right. You can get through it. Why? Because you've got the love and the support and the care from other people that are around you. Relationships are everything, guys. Relationships are everything. But there is no, no greater relationship than between you and your Creator. That is the relationship you want to foster. And that is the primary relationship that you need to foster. Always growing in knowing Him, knowing the Lord, knowing the Lord. So clearly there is an expectation of knowledge in man. The second point is there is a declaration of knowledge from God. He says in verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that which we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now, this is an incredible statement given from the Lord here. And I want you to note an interesting shift. There's a really interesting shift here from the singular to the plural. I don't know if you, if you get that in there. Is, it, so you think about who he's addressing the statement to, okay? So notice in verse 10 that Jesus says, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Art thou? He's speaking to Nicodemus in the singular. And then in verse 11, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. The words thee and thou, are they singular or plural pronouns? Who knows? Are they singular or plural? Thee and thou. What are they? They're singular, yeah? We've got that benefit. And I guess I'm speaking to the converted here, but we've got that benefit in the authorised version where we've got both singular and plural pronouns clearly established. 
Okay, we don't say thee or thou anymore. The English has lost that that distinction between the two. But you see, when God gave us the Old Testament and the New Testament, that distinction was there. And those who understood that language had the benefit of recognising that distinction. And in the English, especially in modern times, we've taken away that that distinction. So when I'm speaking to um, you, I'm speaking to more than one. When I'm speaking to thee, then I'm speaking to only one. Okay, but we've lost that in the English. But God clearly wanted us to know that Jesus here was specifically speaking to Nicodemus. Okay, but then stating something profound both about Nicodemus and those that are like him. Have a look there in verse 11. He says, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not how shall ye believe if i tell you of heavenly things so the distinction has been made okay between nicodemus and also another group of people a group of people that are like him that are related to him we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness So who is it that Jesus is addressing there? Who's he speaking about? We're not going to go into all of it because I had had a lot of notes on this, but it's safe to say that Jesus is speaking about all the rulers of Israel here. He's speaking about the Pharisees. He's speaking about the governing body of Israel. He's not speaking about the people of Israel because remember in the Bible that many trusted in Christ, um, um, all knew him. They trusted even that it had been he that should have redeemed Israel. The Bible tells us that many had followed him, many were baptised in him, all Jerusalem came out to hear him, to be cleansed, to be healed, to be fed, to be exercised of demon possession and to hear the words of eternal life. So the people themselves loved Christ and wanted to come to him, but who was he rejected by? He was rejected by the governing body, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember that in Matthew 23? So if you want to dig that out a little bit further, do so. I'll give you the passages you can make a note of. To just study, just in the book of Luke, you can have a look at. It's Luke 19, 41 to 44. Luke 19, 41 to 44. Luke 13, 34 to 35. So just two verses there. Luke 13, 34 to 35. And Luke 11, 49 to 51. Another couple of verses there, three verses there. Luke eleven forty nine to 51. So you really study that and see for, of a certainty that these are those who receive not our witness that Jesus is speaking about, okay? Now, something else that I find really interesting. Jesus is declaring knowledge from God. He's declaring knowledge from God. You'll notice by the headline heading of the second point what I'm saying that this is saying, Okay? And, but it's not my authority. I believe that I'm getting this directly out of the text. There's another fascinating use of plurals within this and something that we're a little bit more familiar with. He says, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. Isn't that interesting? Jesus begins saying, I say unto thee, but then he declares, we speak that we do know and testify that 
we have seen. Do you notice that? That's interesting. Who's with him? Is there anybody else with the Lord? See, there's a belief, there's a couple of ideas that are out there. One of the ideas was that he is speaking on behalf of all the prophets. We have seen, we witness, we're witnessing to you. But again, that sort of fails the test of context because the reason why it does is because verse 13 gives us that context. And he says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. He's, he's giving you an understanding of who it is that's revealing these things to you. When he says, we speak that we do know. But interesting, he also says and testify that we have seen exactly what have the ancient prophets seen concerning the kingdom of God. Seen, visibly seen, with the eyes seen. My belief here is that this is speaking about Jesus together with God the two being in one, or three in one. We have a, a picture of the triunity of God in this, in this text. So the we pronoun is the Son of Man, which is in heaven. It's interesting because that's in, in verse 13. Who is it? One with the Father. Okay, so to me, this is not a problem that this is speaking about Jesus Christ together with God bringing out this pronouncement. So it might sound a little bit confusing, but the mist clears up when we remember the triune nature of God. We've always got to keep that in mind. When there's something a little bit unclear like this, remember the doctrines, what the Bible actually teaches elsewhere. So very, very, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. So, So God has given us knowledge. He's given us knowledge of heaven and the truth of the gospel through a special revelation known as his word. He speaks that which he knows and testifies that which he has seen. But we receive not his witness. The people that he came to seek and to save, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. We receive not his witness. An account is given to us in Luke chapter 16. Turn in your Bibles there for a minute. Luke chapter 16. It's an account of that rich man who now finds himself in hell and being in torments, he desires more than anything else that his brethren would come and they would hear the truth about this place. He says, lest they also come unto this place of torment. There were five of them, five brethren in his father's house. And we want to take our text from verse, uh, verse 29. Verse 29. Actually, take it from verse 28. He says to them, he says, he's speaking to Abraham, so this is the rich man, he's in hell, and he's speaking to Abraham, who he can see afar off, I don't know how that works, uh, with Lazarus in his bosom. And he says to them in verse 28, he says, For I have five brethren, oh, hang on, hang on, go back. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, thou... Yeah, hang on. He's speaking about Lazarus in verse 27. He says, "Then Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. 
So we have within this book that which is known and that which is seen. And friends, it was actually given by the one who rose from the dead. We have both. We have the prophets and we have one who rose from the dead to warn us about these things. Will you hear him? Will you hear? Will you believe? The third point is that there is a witness of knowledge from heaven. A witness of knowledge from heaven. We see that in verse 13. You know, back to the Gospel of John. Have a look at verse 13. On John chapter 3. He says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And here we have the very source for us of this, of this witness. Witness that came down from heaven, which is in heaven, the Son of Man. The term Son of Man. It's a term that's used a lot in the Bible. You know, it's used a lot in the Bible. Matter of fact, it's used in the Old Testament exclusively, almost exclusively, sorry, almost exclusively of man. Man, born of man, right? Only one time it's not used in that way. Only one time. In the New Testament, it's used exclusively of that one time. It's not used that way in the Old Testament, except for one time. So, one time in the New Testament, it refers to man born of man, right? Or man born of a woman, son of man, okay? But every other time, it's actually used exclusively of the same way that it's used in Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And it's worth turning in your Bibles to Daniel, chapter 7. So, you're going to roughly the middle of your Bible, turn right, you'll go past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, you'll hit Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. What we discover, you notice that in verse 13 in the Gospel of John, it's actually used as a title. He says, even the Son of Man. And it's actually used as a title, it's a capital S that's been given. And it's the Son of Man, it's used as a title. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, it's just used as a description. Hey, you, Son of Man, go and do this. Hey, you, son of man, go and do this. It's just used as a description. But in the gospel and in all the accounts in the New Testament, it's used as a title. Chapter 7, have a look at verse, verse 13. This is Daniel speaking, what he sees in the night visions. He says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. This son of man is that son of man that Jesus is referring to. And every single time it's used in the Gospels of the New Testament... It's always Jesus referring to himself. Always Jesus referring to himself. It was that very quote that actually had seen him condemned to be crucified. Did you know that? Remember that time when the Pharisees said to him in Mark, 
And uh, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest rent these clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. The very claim to be the very person that's in Daniel chapter 7 was the same claim that the Pharisees recognised he was presenting himself as God. And he needed to be condemned to death. They believed that was blasphemy. Okay, so it's an important expression. It's an important, important expression. So the Pharisees, the rulers of Israel, that they knew that title was a title of deity, a title of God. When they saw that applied to Jesus, they condemned him. So there in the text. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Real quick, let me just tell you something about this phrase, which is in heaven. Okay, it's a phrase that's been used and deleted from every single modern translation, the phrase, which is in heaven. Why? Because in their minds, it's not that it's in, not in the text, it's in the Greek text, it's there in the original, but they've taken it out. Why have they taken it out? Because in their minds, they, they think that it's too difficult to reconcile how Jesus can be referring to himself, yet claiming to be in heaven. Okay, notice that? It says, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, present tense. Right? So it's been deleted from the modern translations. But the problem goes away when the context is recognised. The Lord clearly referring to God in his plural Godhead in verse 11. We know that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. And though he was present on earth, it does not deny that he was not with the Father being in heaven. I and my Father are one, he says. You've got to think about this because how could he have seen Nathaniel under the fig tree when he was nowhere near him? Remember that? He was nowhere near Nathaniel. And Nathaniel thought the, thought the thing was so profound and he was so impacted that he identified Jesus as, Thou art the Christ, thou art the Son of God. How? Somehow Jesus was able to see Nathaniel without actually physically being in one place or in another place. It's very difficult. The same thing happened when it came to the centurion who wanted his servant healed. He stopped Jesus. He actually says to him, no, no, you don't have to personally come. He says to him, no, I am a, I am a, a leader of many. I say to this one, go and do this and he doeth it and that one, go and do this and he doeth it. Just say the word and he'll be healed. In other words, he'll send out his spirit. He can be in a different place at the same time. See, personally, I don't have a problem with God being omnipresent. So as far as that verse is concerned, doesn't bother me at all. To me, it belongs in the text. If it's written in the original, it should be there, regardless of whether we can't reconcile it within our own minds. Really sad state that modern translations have gotten into. Last point, the foreshadowing of faith on earth. And Moses, as, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We could spend so much time going through just that incredible portion, and we'll spend a little bit more time going through that next week. But in the meantime, turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21, the last portion of Scripture that I'll get you to turn to, but it's worth doing it because you need to see the foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Remember in Numbers 21, so it's the first part known as the Pentateuch. The first five books of Moses is known as the, the Pentateuch. Penta is the word for five. Numbers is the last one just before Deuteronomy, the fourth book. And it tells about what's going on during that 40 years in the wilderness. It seems that they came out of Egypt complaining, these people, you know. You can't take them anywhere and they won't be complaining. They're complaining, complaining, complaining. They came out of Egypt complaining, you know. And we've got the same thing in chapter 21. Have a look at verse 5. It says, And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth, loatheth this light bread. They're talking about the provision that God's given them, the manna. It comes from heaven. Man did eat angels' food, the Bible says. That's what they loathe. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. There you go, Michael. There's a, a use of the word much that I wouldn't use. You know? I would have thought they should say many. You know? But the Lord says much. I'm not going to be complaining about you anymore, mate. All right? Much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon the pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Jesus is referring to himself in the likeness of that serpent. What an incredible foreshadowing. What an incredible picture that we have in the Old Testament about what Jesus was going to do. Now, have a look at that seriously. We've got something really interesting. We've got a tree, okay, a pole, a tree, okay, that's used for the, ex, for the exercise of penalty, punishment. Do you know it's still used today? It's still used today. You look at what's going on in North Korea at the moment, they do the same thing with people that are uh, disobeying the commands of the leadership in North Korea, they tie them to the pole and they whip them and whip them and beat them. And some of them are killed there against that pole. It's a, it's a, it's a place where penalty is exercised. Okay? But what else has he put on there? He's put a serpent, a snake. Why a snake? Why a serpent? Any ideas? There you go. It's the very representation of sin. You know, what does the Bible refer to Satan as? What does God refer to Satan as? That old serpent, which is Satan and the devil. Okay? He's referred to as a serpent. What was it that deceived them in the garden? It was a serpent. What's a picture of sin? It's a serpent. But the other interesting thing is it's brass. Why brass? Well, we discover through Scripture that brass is a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of judgment. So what you effectively have is upon that pole you have sin judged. Sin judged. 
It's one of the weaker elements of metal. It burns very, very quickly. In other words, it melts. It has a very low, low heat threshold compared to many other metals. Okay, it burns, it, it heats up and melts very, very quickly. Sin judged on that pole. And what's, what's Jesus claiming? He's claiming to be that very representation. That was a representation in the Old Testament. Jesus is actually claiming to be that same thing. You know, we're not ignorant of this either. Do you know that that same symbol that's in the Old Testament has come down to us through history? It actually came down to us first through Greek mythology. It's actually known as the Rod of Asclepius. I don't know if you've ever heard of that phrase. It's a picture of a pole with a snake serpent wrapped around it. It's called the Rod of Asclepius. And it's moved, and it was known as he was the god of healing. Okay? It's the same symbol that's used today when you walk into the doors of a hospital, of a medical clinic, on the back of an ambulance or anything like that, same symbol. There has been some perversions of that, of that symbol, so you're going to find sometimes a winged staff with two serpents wrapped around it. That's on most of our ambulances today. That's actually a different, a different god in the Greek. That's the god of market, the god of commerce, the god of money. Might give you a bit of a picture of what they're focused on. So different God completely. But an interesting corruption of what actually happened in ages past. Remember, the Greek culture wasn't around during the time of Israel and Numbers and their time in the wilderness. So that's what we have. We have a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ on the pole that he identifies with. He is sin judged. Sin. Jesus Christ was sin judged. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Romans 8, 3, it says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus claimed to be the very representation in the past foreshadowing what, what he would do in the future as he spoke to Nicodemus. And the understanding was not lost on Nicodemus. But in case, in case he let it slip, Jesus follows up with the 15th verse saying that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. 700 years before Jesus walked the shores of Galilee, Isaiah wrote this of him in chapter 53. He said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. In verse 11, the following verse, he says, And he shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Friends, we can go back to the beginning of the Bible. That God had always made a, a plan to deal with the sin of mankind. Man can't. We can't deal with our own sin. We fail often enough even to identify and recognise that it's there. We fail even in that. But God had always had a plan always had a way of being able to free man from his sin and rejoin him in that relationship. 
in this passage that we've been looking at in the Gospel of John, we have a, an expectation of knowledge in man. Man is expected to be aware of not only his sin, but also that any change that needs to happen to him has to be complete. A full change. The heart, the stony heart has to be removed and a heart of flesh needs to be put into its place. All right? The spirit needs to be come to life. We also identify that there is a declaration of knowledge from God. God has given us his revelation generally that he exists. But now we also have his special revelation. This coming from God, the gospel, that we have a way of eternal life. You see, we are dead, the Bible says, in trespasses and sin. We are dead in trespasses and sin. Do you know that Jesus didn't come to make bad men good? I heard one commentator and he said, he didn't come to make bad men good, but to give dead men life. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's come to make us alive, to quicken us in him. We have the witness of knowledge from heaven, Jesus, the one who was in heaven came down from heaven, he was the one that testified and witnessed of these things. And finally, we have the foreshadowing of faith on earth. The things that actually happened in the past, foreshadowing what Jesus would do, yet future, that come into the future. Old Testament is an awesome book. It's an awesome book. It has so many pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ within it. I'd encourage you to read it and set it aside. It's a great book. There are some difficult parts to get through, and it's a big book, but it's a wonderful one. The New Testament reveals what was in the Old Testament concealed. So the entire Bible is a, is a worthwhile project to go through and read. So that's what we have. We have the Lord who's come down, who's shown himself to you as the one who saves. As they beheld the pole in the wilderness and each one was healed, so too do we have that option. We can decide not to look, but we will die in our trespasses and sins, just as they died in the wilderness. Or we can believe God and look. You know, I guess it's a little bit different in the Old Testament time there when, when you've got a, you know, if you're struggling with an ailment and you know that you're going to die, like any minute, if you can feel yourself getting sick, you know, you're happy to look for a cure, aren't you? Straight away, you'll reach out for it, no problems at all. But when you don't sense that you're sick, when you refuse to actually acknowledge your own sin, then that search for a cure doesn't sort of... It's not urgent anymore, is it? I can wait. Well, no, I can't wait because you don't know when your time is going to be finished. You know, you'll find yourself as that rich man. So repent, please. Please repent of your sin. Please acknowledge Christ. Trust in Him. Believe be saved let's pray father we thank you again dear lord for this time thank you for our friends and brothers and sisters in the lord and i just pray to your father that your word would have an impact within their lives that they would see and they would believe that they would trust in who you are that they would acknowledge jesus christ as their lord and savior i pray dear lord that your spirit would continue to work in amongst us and give us a joy in the lord and a hope in our Saviour. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen.